Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with Globalizing the Rising, 1916 in Context, a major conference which will take place in University College Dublin on the 5th and 6th of February 2016. For more information, go to centenaries.ucd.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at the Universities in Revolution and State Formation Conference, which took place in UCD Newman House on the 5th and 6th of June 2015. This project was funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award and by a University College Dublin Decade of Centenaries Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording from Panel 3, Identity, Nation and the University. The paper, Scholars Are Subversives, Indian Law Students in Dublin, 1913-1916, was given by Dr. Conor Mulva from University College Dublin. This paper will look at Indian students in Ireland as a lens to estimate the experience of international students in periods of social and political flux, be it either in the country that they're coming from or in their destination of study, to put uh, modern international student experience um, parlance on it. Um, There's several things I want to look at today. I want to look at terror, surveillance and radicalism as three tropes that I think will go through this study which I've been doing for over a year and a half now into the role of Indian students, or let's say the experience of Indian students um, in Ireland in the period 1913 up to 1916, 1917. Um, And the other three questions I want to, I suppose, frame this talk with. First of all, why Indians? Why Ireland? And why the law? Um, I'll get into all that in much more detail, but the short answer, you can all go home after this because it's the whole point of my paper, uh, why Indians? Because they're important in terms of the empire. Why Ireland? um, That that really is, therein lies the rub. That's that's what I'm going to spend a lot of, uh, of today talking about. And why the law? I think that's a particularly interesting question because what we see here is the differences in legal codes across the British Empire is actually being elemental to the reason why the law is chosen by Indians as their subject of choice when they go both to Britain and Ireland in the period prior to uh, the end of the First World War, let's put it that way. The man at the centre of all this, there's what I, when Brian referred earlier to a cohort of Indian students, this is really about a dozen, maybe 20 students um, who come over to Ireland. But at the centre of them in terms of their later significance is this man, uh, V.V. Giri. V.V. Giri from 1969 until 1974 was the president of India. Um, he studied at UCD and at the King's Inns in Dublin between August of 1913 and the summer of 1916. He never took his degree in UCD. He did, however, pass the bar exams and was qualified as a barrister of the King's Inns Dublin in the summer of 1916 before his deportation from this country. The issues and problems that I consider today echo questions about student activism and the difficulties of assimilation and isolation felt by minority ethnic student communities across European cities in the same period that I look at. The longer history of Indian students, both in Britain and in Ireland, opens revealing insights, especially into the attitudes of host communities, when everything from housing, moral crises, interracial relations, political subversion, intelligence gathering, political violence, um, and even sexual liberation come under the spotlight. 
These same tropes emerge in Gortz Nordbrook's recent study of Arab students in Weimar, Germany, and in Thomas Weber's 2008 monograph, Our Friend, the Enemy, Elite Education in Britain and Germany Before the First World War. Similarly, and there isn't much of a historiography on Indian law students either in Ireland or elsewhere, um, so in trying to situate this within a wider um, historical literature, I have come across um, older histories of student experience, particularly African students in the USSR, uh, Filipino students in 1940 Chicago, and even the reaction to American male students in Paris directly uh, after and during the First World War. So there is a, a wide body of you know, this educated other entering into urban and educational environments um, and going through these similar experiences and teething problems that uh, associate with that. Um, the question I find myself asking today when investigating the experiences of Indian law students in pre-revolutionary Dublin is, as I've titled today's paper, whether my subjects can be viewed simply as students who had tangential experience of the major events occurring around them, or whether they should be seen as figures within Indian political intelligence appear to have intermittently viewed them as subversives, whose studies came second to their associations with anti-imperialists and separatists, both in Indian and Irish extraction. This question is grounded not in any philosophical musing, but rather in the sources. There is, at the heart of this study into Indian students in Dublin, a very difficult source conundrum for me as a historian. The vast bulk of surviving primary sources relating to Indian students in Dublin in this period suggests a life of scholarly contemplation, student life, and overwhelming normalcy. However, the memoirs and recollections of these exact same people, both the Irish side of the recollections and the Indians, suggest um, a, you know, a much more fantastical story, an exciting narrative littered with factual inconsistencies, but nonetheless telling a story with which we can find scant scraps of substantiating primary sources from state archives and university records. This second narrative is certainly a thrilling one. In it, we are recounted with raids, subterfuge, revolutionary networks, and groups of students who, while enjoying a remarkably close link with Ireland's revolutionary elite, managed to remain just one step ahead of the nascent anti-terror squads, the likes of which we were now familiar with in the 21st century. In reading the retrospective history of Indian students in Dublin, I have come across tales of anarchist societies, deportations, and even extrajudicial killings by British security forces. It has been an incredibly difficult task for me to substantiate whether these things actually existed or occurred or whether, um, I suppose, they're pure inventions in hindsight. However, what I must stress is that time and again, I have come across names, dates and other records in the archive which corroborate claims which at first encountered I deemed utterly improbable. Researching this kind of history, I'm reminded of the work of Leon O'Brien, who in 1976 wrote a study of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and attempted, I would argue quite successfully, to reconstruct a movement whose essence was secrecy and for whom the smallest traces of internally generated uh, primary source documentation were the only thing that, that remained. To write the history of a clandestine activity uh, or organisation goes against much of the historian's training, particularly when it's rooted in the archive. The paucity of records is frustrating, um, and in the final um, assessment, scant corroborating primary sources remind one that just because there is no nicely catalogued archival history of something should not be taken of proof that the event in question 
did not occur. So caveat entered. Um, to write the history of Indian students that relied entirely on archivally concrete sources would, I believe, result in an account so sanitised as to be meaningless. In the face of this, Indian students who came to Dublin in 1913 conducted their studies, lived in digs, made some connections in Dublin society, sat their exams and left. This is akin to giving the account of a modern Erasmus student's time in Dublin based solely on the information that can be gleaned from their tutorial card and their examination record, ignoring their social media profile, all the tracking that we have on their phone and all the, all the illicit and illustrious activities that they get up to, I'm sure, during their six months in Dublin. And I teach international students. Um, thus, it's certain that Indian law students were interested in radical politics as much as they were in studying for the bar. So where should we qualify our assessment between the scholar and the subversive? The cohort under investigation here are believed to be first, the first ever batch of international students who came over as a group to Ireland. This group of Indian law students arrived here in the autumn of 1913 and exited at various points between 1916 and 1917. As pioneers in what would today be dubbed study abroad, these students faced a myriad of administrative, cultural, financial problems uh, as they said about studying in Dublin, in what appeared to be the eve of a home rule Ireland. The political context is significant. Not only home rule, but also the 1913 Dublin lockout formed the political backdrop to the arrival of these students, 13 in number. The students arrived around August of 1913, although I still have yet to ascertain a firm shipping date for this particular uh, cohort of of radical law students. Um, And it coincided um, remarkably closely with Bloody Sunday um, of the Dublin lockout. Within three years, the majority of the students had left either with or without degrees um, with which they'd come to study. And for some, but not all, of the students involved, it appears that the 1916 Rising was a decisive event and a determining factor in their position and remaining in Ireland in that period. Fear of subversion and contagion led the authorities to clamp down hard on Indian students in Dublin after the 1916 Rising. The centrepiece of today's talk, Vivi Giri, claims that he left Ireland having received notice on the 1st of June 1916 from military authorities in the aftermath of the Rising, instructing him to leave the United Kingdom within one month due to his close association with persons who were involved in the insurrection. It just so happens that Giri also passed his bar exams, receiving his results on the 16th of June 1916. And here is a question, you know, is he just finished and he likes to paint himself into a, a sort of a Don Quixote romantic um, portrayal of, of the events surrounding him, or is he genuinely linked into revolutionary politics? The presence of a detailed memoir by Vivi Giri in the 1970s, with a generous shelf of Irish history books supplied by the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland at the time to him, um, alongside some highly illuminating detail um, from this self-authored hagiography, um, does lead me towards wondering and worrying to what degree there is an element of uh, distortion, making my job as the historian in all this much more difficult. In internationalising the history of UCD's, sorry, Ireland's revolutionary decade, two international comparators are significant above all others. Irish support at the turn of the century for the passage of the South African Home Rule Act in 1909 and the importance of the Boer precedent uh, towards advanced Irish nationalists, here we can see Griffith, Maud Gaughan and others as being central, is one. However, the less well-established or obvious 
is the Indian example, despite important spade work uh, by historians who precede me. Um, from partition to home rule, Swaraj, the Indian word essentially for home rule, to the exit of India from the Commonwealth, the experiences that shaped India and Ireland during the 20th century are remarkably similar in their nature. Even to take one figure, de Valera, and his linkages with Indian nationalism, they stretch from the publication of his pamphlet Ireland and India in New York in 1920 to his meeting with the Indian president, Dr. Savarapali Radhakrishnan, in September of 1964, when an ageing de Valera produced the sword given to him by members of the San Francisco-based Gadar movement back in 1919 in Birmingham. 1964 also witnessed the appointment of the first Irish ambassador to India. All this has been covered, as I said, in great detail, particularly by Kate O'Malley, whose examination of Irish-Indian links from 1919 up to the 1960s has done huge service not only to Irish-Indian history, but to the decompartmentalisation of British Commonwealth history. Indian-Irish links do not begin in 1919, however, and the historian Michael Silvestri has done much to augment the history of earlier Irish-Indian interactions, citing Geary's stated preference for studying in Ireland uh, over Britain. We find in Geary's memoir a quote which resonates with, uh, with Silvestri. Uh, Geary rec- recounted that they, the Indian students, felt a great affinity for the Irish, who were chafing under British rule, suffering from similar problems to the Indians. Um, one Irish MP who frequently drew upon the Irish-Indian parallel in the late 19th century was the Fenian come-home ruler Frank Hugh O'Donnell, who closely followed developments in Imperial India and drew parallels between Britain's eastern and western colonies as he saw it and articulated it in the House of Commons. Crucially, O'Donnell was involved in the attempted establishment of an Indian home rule organisation with a mixture of Irish politicians and Indian students then resident in London in the latter phase of the 19th century. Despite the failure of this concept and organisation to find roots, later linkages between advanced Irish nationalists and Indian law students in Dublin, as we'll explore later in this paper, proved validity of this earlier attempt by F.H. O'Donnell. Despite the geographic distance from each other, Ireland and India share much common experience in the modern period. Imperialism, independence, partition, in India's case twice, first in 1905 with Bengal and then in 1947 with India-Pakistan, uh, um, are all elements which find this, uh, this commonality. Adding to that, the search for incremental sovereignty um, are all common tropes in the story of former colonies of the British Empire. And we can add to this Canada, uh, South Africa and the other uh, Commonwealth nations that, that, I suppose, populate those uh, Commonwealth conferences of the 1920s. Decolonisation and the for- formation of Swadeshan nation-states was arguably the most dominant historical force in the politics of the 20th century. We might add to that nationalism. Um, but the movements that agitated for independence from the kingdoms, empires and commonwealths of the periods were populated by men and women with a detailed knowledge of the system against which they were fighting. University education played a major role, not only in creating educated and socially conscious young agitators who contributed to the new politics of their day and their um, embryonic states, but it also formed networks of those who were interested in different but invariably related causes, and they could meet and associate in the university setting, the building in which we're standing being just one example of that. And Stephen's paper earlier today, I think, uh, really attests to that in an earlier period. Um, 
The subject chosen by Dublin's first Indian students was not arbitrary, as I said. For several years, law had been the subject of choice for Indians sympathetic to their national cause. Like Ireland and Scotland, India was subject to a region-specific legal code under the British Empire. In both Ireland and India, coercion bills had been introduced following waves of political agitation, most notably following the 1857 Indian Mutiny and the 1867 Fenian Fenian Uprising in Ireland and in North America. Agrarian as well as political agitation were common to both jurisdictions, and one of the subjects that Indian nationalists were encouraged to study when they travelled to the British Isles was to study the law and thus expose these young men firsthand to the, the stark differences between Indian and British legal systems. Britain, and specifically the southeast of England, Oxford, Cambridge, and London, had become the destination of choice for Indian students in the first decade of the 20th century. Ireland's university sector had been radically overhauled in 1908 with the enactment of the Irish Universities Act which established UCD and the National University of Ireland. In 1909, UCD as it's currently constituted came into being and it opened its doors for the first time in 1909 for lectures. However, it was not the case that word of Ireland's great university reforms had reached India and induced students to look beyond the more established English universities. Um, It was actually a very different event in 1909, I would argue, uh, which appears to be the root of changing student experiences for Indians travelling to the British Isles. On the 1st of July 1909, while attending an evening's entertainment in a salon room much like this one, at the Indian National Association at the Imperial Institute in South Kensington, London, Sir William Hurt Curzon Wiley, a senior official in the Government of India, was shot and killed instantly by a Punjabi engineering student in the University of London, Madan Lal Dringa. In the course of this attack, Dringa also shot Dr Kawas Lalaka, a Farsi physician who intervened in a failed attempt to save Wiley's life. In the history of British political assassinations, the Wiley murder is to India as the 1882 Phoenix Park murders of Chief Secretary Cavendish and Under Secretary Burke are to Ireland. Wiley's assassination caused uproar and panic across the British administrative and security circles. Political assassination was not altogether uncommon in India at the time, but the fact that Wiley had been gunned down in London rather than Lahore was what shocked the British authorities. Terror on on home soil for the British government has always, and the Northern Irish example is a key one of this, evoked a much sterner and more prompt response. Attitudes towards Indians in Britain, especially students given uh, Laldringa's particular connections, soured dramatically after this point. Even before the assassination of Wiley, attitudes towards Indians had been strained. Um, Suces Nasta's study of Indians in Britain, South Asian Networks and Connections, 1858 to 1950, examines the moral dimensions of Indian student experiences in Britain in the early 20th century and details how popular literature explored the exoticism of Indian students with plots that frequently, this is in sort of penny dreadfuls, that were very widely read in Britain in the the first decade of the the 20th century. Um, And in these books, the plots frequently looked at uh, subterfuge, subversion, conspiracy, as well as the moral dimension of liaisons between white women and Indian men. So somewhere between Mills and Boone and The Born Identity, I think, is probably where you can situate those novels if you want to pick them up. Um, we'll all go down to Waterstones afterwards. Um, such topics were not merely the fodder for potboiler novellas, however, and they coincided with the same concerns about morality, assimilation, and the lack of oversight and the excessive liberty which young Indian 
and I stress male students in Britain, led to the establishment in 1907 of what was termed the Lee Warner Committee. The Lee Warner Committee um, had been brought about as a suggestion that Indian students be housed with respectable English families, and I quote, so as to afford a degree of paternalistic guidance, oversight and control. And this would mitigate, the committee hoped, against the dangers of either political or sexual deviancy, uh, which the drafters of the report were so concerned about. Once the case of Madame Ladringer and the assassination of Wiley in 1909, this appeared to give retrospective justification to the concerns of the 1907 Lee Warner Committee. It was thus in the shadow of this execution, and uh, Ladringer himself was executed promptly after this point, um, that these hardening attitudes both in state and society towards Indian students in Britain saw these 13 or so Indian law students arrive in Dublin in 1913 and enrolled for Michaelmas term in the Honourable Society of King's Inns. Just as a quick aside on this, one of the reasons why Ireland may have become a beacon of uh, welcoming for Indian students is through the work of Irish Republican feminists. In Eden and Heron, the Daughters of Ireland, um, reportedly hung a banner outside their headquarters in Dublin saying, we support Madden Ladringa in 1909. And they then they handed out handbills all across Dublin after the assassination to say that this form of political assassination was exactly what the Daughters of Ireland were all about, and they wholeheartedly condoned it. So again, sending a clear beacon out to India. There's no question that that eventually would have got back to the major urban centres of India um, at the time. By 1914, the students who had arrived the year before um, had also enrolled in University College Dublin as well as the King's Inns, where they undertook studies in law. Several of these students undertook other courses, as was a requirement on top of their legal studies. Among these, Vivi Giri, formerly a student at the University of Madras and the son of a lawyer practising in Barampur, a city famous for silk production on India's east coast, um, began to enrol for these classes in, in UCD as well. In 1913, there was nothing exceptional to distinguish Geary from his classmates. He wasn't marked out as some future president, obviously. Um, However, I will focus uh, predominantly on Geary here, not because I think he's particularly important in the context of 1913 to 16, but because of his subsequent uh, importance in world history and Indian um, presidential history. So so that's essentially, bear, bear with me as I, I suppose, focus on Geary. Um, more than more than others, he also leaves this very vivid account. And here's just one uh, quote from Geary's account: Indian students preferred to study in Ireland in preference to England because there was neither a colour bar nor racial prejudice of any kind among the Irish, probably due to the adverse circumstances of their history. They felt great affinity for the Irish, they the Indians, um, who were also chafing under British rule, as I said, suffering from a variety of similar problems as Indians, both economic and political largely due to the exploitation through British imperialism. A large number of them were from my part of the country. Some of them were friends who had written to me, encouraging me to join them in his travels to Ireland, and the expectation of congenial company in a distant land had helped me in deciding to study the university in Dublin. So, hence Geary's own personal justification. Um, One of the prerequisites, as I said, for the King's Inns was the students had to enrol in a suitable university to conduct the rest of their studies. Geary was among the 13 Indian students who enrolled for the degree in law at UCD in the academic year in 1914-1915. So a difficult time with war clouds gathering that summer and moving into the the first year of the war um, for essentially outsiders, although I stress not aliens and empire subjects in this period. 
Geary was one of five of these students who came from the University of Madras, so again speaking to that large cohort from that city. This cohort is readily identifiable both in the records of the King's Inns and in UCD. In the records of UCD, the entry for 1914 minutes of the Academic Council notes that five students from the University of Madras had applied for admission to the college uh, to study for a full BA course. The subsequent entry in the minutes of the university's governing body, Registrar, reported that, and I quote, two Indian students have applied for permission to attend the lectures in political economy and English literature. This thus corroborates Geary's statement in his autobiography that he was lectured by Professor George A. Murnahan um, in the law faculty, by Thomas A. Finley in, um, in the faculty of political economy, and crucially by the prominent uh, um, proclamation signatory and 1916 leader Thomas McDonough in English. McDonough obviously had been heavily involved in revolutionary organisation and paramilitary politics in Ireland and the fact that McDonough was one of Geary's teachers is significant because in searching for tangible links between Indian students and advanced Irish nationalists it's in the lecture theatre rather than any other forum which we find these two concretely uh, associated together and as we heard from earlier papers, these were very, this is not like the university of today with 500 students in Theodore L. This was an intimate university setting uh, where lecturers certainly would have known their students. Um, and it would seem that Geary's claims of having um, you know, very close personal acquaintance with McDonough um, are substantiated by this. It's also significant that only two Indian students are noted as having applied to studies under Professors Finlay and McDonough um, at UCD. If one of these was Geary, then the question arises, who was the other? In answering this question, what scant evidence I have points to a man named Palsetti Hanuma Gupta, one of five University of Madras students um, who arrived with Geary. As Student Society's records from the King's Inns, and there's the King's Inns, just so you can see them. There's the full list of, um, of students. This is the permission to study at UCD uh, in minutes from 1914. Of these five students, we can ascertain from student society records that Geary's closest friend among the Dublin Indian students uh, was um, P.A. or P.H. Gupta, um, as he's variously recorded. Geary appears to have been an average student uh, in his studies, um, and in 1916 he was placed 14 out of 20, achieving a third-class honours with 52% in his exams in the Victoria Prize examinations of that year. And... You know, without denigrating a, a president of India, I did find a wonderful tract in the National Student, the student paper of UCD. They wrote poems about these new exotic Indian students as they arrived in Dublin, and they dedicated a verse to all the characters who graced the university. And the verse about Vivi Giri, I had trouble um, deciphering. Uh, it says, An excellent fellow called Giri once wended his way into Niri. When society urged, he slowly emerged, and his gait was decidedly beery. So I was a little confused by this until my former head of school, John McCaffrey, said, that's Neary's pub in Dublin. Geary went in there for a few pints and he walked out uh, unable to walk in a straight line. Um, so interestingly, and I say you, you do have to deal with scant evidence when, when working on these topics, this for me explains a little bit about where we draw the line between this ardent uh, political radical and a bit of a, a lad, and also might explain that third-class honours in 1916. So again, um, you know, it, it does, it adds some colour to the whole thing. Um, attesting to the academic achievements, and you know, I, I only half jest about Geary, he, he does appear to have been a very ardent um, 
labour organiser, a trade unionist, um, and a, a defender of workers' rights once he went back to India. But attesting to the academic achievements of other Indian students, uh, Mr. Giri's slightly mediocre performance aside, um, in the summer of 1917, um, a student identified as N. Rajakulapan um, won first place in the Victoria Prize among his 37 classmates in the senior exams of that year. So Indian students were clearly um, performing at the highest level in Irish legal academia at the time. Dublin was hardly a cosmopolitan city in the same way that London and other major British centres were at this time. Sensual data indicates that although there were not an insignificant number of French, German and Russian-born citizens in Dublin in 1911, foreign nationals from outside Europe were still a rarity in pre-First World War Dublin. In an astonishingly low figure, we have uh, 36,306 persons in Dublin who were born in India. However, I went through these in detail and working off names, religions um, and and, uh, other data, including profession, um, I ascertained that most of these were white imperial subjects of either British or or Irish um, ethnicity, let's say, who were born while serving in public administration or the military uh, in India and simply had, had returned to Ireland. Only three ethnic Indians exist in the Dublin census of 1911. And it's likely that the arrival of 13 Indian law students created quite a bit of stir and interest among the citizenry of Dublin in 1913. Shushela Nasta has written extensively about the perception and reception of South Asians in Britain in this era, but um, it can be reasonable to assume that the Irish uh, experience of distant migrant arrivals was quite different given the lack of pre-existing communities or networks. Michael Kennedy, um, the diplomatic historian of Documents in Irish Foreign Policy, has noted how Dublin's first Indian restaurant opened under a Mr. Kareem Khan beside the Gresham Hotel on O'Connell Street in 1908. However, the business had ceased trading within a year, and Ireland's small Indian community of three uh, in 1911 appears to have only begun to really grow in the 1930s and remained small at least until 1950 and decolonisation. So... Let's take a look at Indian students um, in the round. Ireland was clearly a a hub of anti-imperial networks, and I think one of the things that we have to bring out further in the decade of centenaries is how Ireland became um, globally aware of other revolutions. We talked about the Mexican Revolution, the Boer example, um, and I think things like uh, the Russia-Japanese War um, and, and India as well form part of this. Um, But those Indian students were a clear symbol. This is Giri's actual bar uh, examination certificate, his memorial of his his, uh, qualification in in 1916. And unfortunately, UCD have very poor student records for this period, but the King's Inn's records are incredibly detailed. And I was able to find uh, PH Gupta uh, beside Giri right next to him in the student records of a student society, the King's Inn's. So again, substantiating a lot of what I found, and there's Gary's uh, examination marks. Um, that's uh, the history of law. He was all right at that, 64%. Jurisprudence, 61%. Where he really fell down, and it's interesting that he moved into the labour movement. Personal property, 40%. It's not going great. And then real property, 33%. So clearly um, the nascent labour leader had a, a real problem with property. Uh, even in, in that particular period, um, as, as detailed by his examination records. Uh, I'm not going to tell you with these. These are just various uh, aspects of Geary's 
um, thing. But here we have Giri's, and the reason that I think himself and Gupta were closest together is because I find them living in the same houses. First in Lowell House, which is um, on that road up to Vincent's Private in, uh, in South Dublin nowadays. Um, and also there's Lowell House there. And also on Grove Road, on the, on the canal, this house here, number one Grove Road, was also the residence of the future president of India. So there's a, there's a plaque to be mounted on that by uh, East Dublin Tourism at some point uh, in the future. Um, what I'm trying to find here is the issue of the Irish volunteers. Um, here we go. So, so uh, Geary basically recounted that he was deeply involved in Irish revolutionary politics in this period. He singles out McDonough and James Connolly as two people that he met and engaged with quite deeply. Um, my question is, is he somewhat painting a, a retrospective uh, Labour element into this by situating himself with Connolly because it's been difficult to substantiate uh, links with Connolly, particularly as Connolly's re-entry to Dublin really, um, you know, he, he wasn't as established as some other figures in that period. So in Geary's own words, although my student life at the university was spent ostensibly for the study of law and the pursuit of jurisprudence, I was drawn irresistibly into the cross-currents of the Irish struggle for self-government. While the Indian South, um, South in Ireland might not have been allowed access to the top secret information or participation in their deliberations. By and large, the Irish patriots accepted some of us as friends who were most interested in the freedom movement and confided many things to us, their politics and programmes, and they certainly made no secret of their hatred of the English. So we're getting this sort of um, sectarian network of Irish-Indian relations in this period. The other Indian I should um, underline in this period of uh, of the pre-revolution is um, the poet Rabindra uh, Tagore who famously travelled to Britain in 1912 and met with W.B. Yeats and across in Stevens Green the first gate you can get into Stevens Green from this building um, if you turn to your right you'll actually see a bust of Tagore in Stevens Green um, so again his links with Ireland were quite profound but I would argue that in terms of revolutionary politics rather than poetry and culture um, it's, it's, uh, it's these Indian students rather than anyone else who um, cement this. They wrote in the paper of the Irish Volunteers, the Irish Volunteer, and wrote two articles in 1914 before the Defence of the Realm Act was enacted and censorship began to, to plague the, uh, the, the general printing um, media in Ireland in that period. I, I reckon they were written by, uh, by P.A. Gupta because he's He's underlined in many sources as being the author of, um, or let's say the most involved, he provided safe houses to IRA uh, volunteers and, and, and Irish volunteers in the period. Um, and one of the things that I would tentatively suggest is that V.V. Geary's memoir, although it provides um, a scintillating account of Indians in Dublin, is actually a synthesis of multiple experiences rather than... What I'm saying is that Geary puts himself at the centre of, of the narrative at all times. And my supposition is that what he's actually doing is, is finding um, other participants and uh, sort of writing himself into the story, whether they were out of the picture or whether he figured they'd never read his book. Um, but academics can all sympathise with that. Um, so just to conclude, in contextualising Indian student experiences in Dublin between the lockout and the rising, the context of previous events is key. Ireland became the destination of choice for a small number of Indian students at a time when the universities and cities of Britain were becoming distinctly less welcoming to South Asians and aliens more generally. The political assassination of William Curzon Wiley in 1909 um, preceded the negative attention 
uh, sorry, preceded by the negative attention which the British Indian student community found following the Lee Warner Committee of 1907, meant that those wealthy Indians who did contemplate further education in the British Isles after 1909 were actively seeking alternatives to their already habitual places of study, London, Oxbridge, Durham and Edinburgh. Um, The numbers who chose Ireland was relatively quite small in this period, and I think we have to stress that. A continued influx did occur into British universities, and these guys were kind of testing the waters in Ireland. Um, It did lead to a much larger Indian population uh, developing an ongoing relationship with the King's Inns Dublin right the way through the 1920s and 30s. Central data shows that 1913 Dublin was not nearly as ethnically diverse as the other larger urban centres, and this meant that those dozen or so Indian students led to a small but growing community in the years that follows. Quite apart from the political history of Dublin's Indian student population, there is a social history here which is highly illuminating. The way in which conservative Dublin opinion in 1916 echoed the moral panic of Londoners ten years earlier can be found when we find um, one particular vigilante publication called The Eye Opener, published in 1916 for only three issues, which actually... um, carried racist articles on Indian students and warned good Catholic white women to stay away from these vampires as they they termed them in the Irish, um, in in Dublin's social scene. Socialising, drinking, um, were all part of the Indian experience in Dublin. However, as with any um, culture clash, this was juxtaposed with trying to preserve elements of home culture, such as vegetarianism, while simultaneously dabbling in elements of Irish culture from frequenting public houses to participating in the Gaelic Revival, which showed just how rich the social history of these Indian Irish encounters can be. That Indian students relied upon the Lord Lieutenant when they finally did experience uh, racial abuse in 1916 prior to the Rising is highly significant. Evidently, colonial solidarity was more common among advanced Irish nationalists than it was in the general population in Dublin. But when moral panic set in, we can see that this is reminiscent of John Borgonovo's work um, to do with American naval personnel visiting Cork in 1917 and 1918 and the reaction of Catholic uh, lower middle classes to them in that period. Clearly, the Union was valued by Indians when it came to their safeguarding um, and deriving their equality of citizenship um, as stipulated by the Empire. Interactions with the Irish volunteers provide the most um, interesting aspect of Indian-Irish encounters in this period from a radicalism, revolution and state formation perspective. The link was both public and published in 1914 through the newspaper The Irish Volunteer um, and the identification of P.A. Gupta by Seamus O'Queenie's witness statement adds a whole other dimension to the story, namely that Indian law students were actively involved in safe housing and cooperating with advanced Irish revolutionary nationalists who had already transitioned into militarism. Taking an empire perspective um, in the lingerie, the years before, uh, before left-wing radicalism, uh, sorry, the years in which uh, left-wing radicalism had dominated MI5 thinking and and nascent British security services thinking, um, they're one thing, but before before the First World War, both Irish and Indian nationalism appear to be the dominant domestic terror threat for the British security services. Um, And they seem to be the most likely cause of subversive activity when it comes to policymakers um, and those in, in charge of security. Whereas the assassination of Wiley fueled fears of terror, propagandistic subversion, and the creation of networks that were anti-imperialist and politically separatist in nature, um, this was infinitely more common um, among radical Indian students um, than it was in the wider population. 
whether through the influence of Gandhi, as Giri claims in his autobiography, or through a moderation born out of that privileged and elite background which these Indian students came to, um, there doesn't appear to be any substance to the threat that Indians were plotting um, bomb-making or anything like this, although Giri does recount that the first student society the Indians founded in Dublin was the Indian Anarchist Society. Um, However, clamping down on propaganda and organising among Dublin's Indian community was the primary task of officers of the Indian Political Intelligence and India House, which coordinated the India office uh, in Dublin in this time. The radicalised attitude towards the prosecution of political acts no doubt contributed to the disproportionate interest which Indian students found um, in studying the law. For their sponsors and political mentors at home, study in the British and Irish legal system did have that clear advantage of allowing an educated and articulated young Indian cohort the opportunity to understand and highlight the anomalistic position of the Indian legal system by experiencing the other half of it uh, in real life. Finally, and I'll conclude here, it's important to consider the ways in which Irish Indian associations fostered in this period bore fruit in the subsequent relations between the two countries. The entry of both Vivi Giri and Eamon de Valera into nationalist politics allowed them to build upon these earlier contexts and create a long, and I would argue somewhat invented narrative, of personal interactive uh, interactions, um, which was used to great political effect, particularly in the 1960s and the early 1970s, in developing diplomatic and bilateral ties between these two adolescent republics. While the amount of lore and exaggeration about the extent um, and nature of early connections which were created in this period, are not helpful to the historian trying to separate fact from invention in the early 20th century, it can be seen in its own right as a distinct chapter in the long history of revolutionary associations between these two nations that De Valera and Geary revived this semi-invented friendship in the 1960s and 70s to justify their lineage as revolutionaries on either end of the British Empire. This degree of uh, association is remarkable for its common experience despite that geographical distance. Um, So I'll leave it there and thank you very much for your attention. We hope you enjoyed this History Hope podcast. You can find many more podcasts at historyhope.ie forward slash podcasts.